we spent the last couple of months in a series on prayer, and it's such a big subject we could spend years, not months, on it. But I haven't been trying to treat it comprehensively. I've instead been trying to look at prayer from angles of approach that aren't usually taken. Uh, so I have a strong sense that we don't fail at prayer because we lack the proper technique. And proper technique is important in any communication, including prayer. And so I don't want to minimize that. But communication is more than technique, and it's the more than that we've been discussing. Um, the last time we preached, we looked at how strands of prayer can be woven through our whole life. I called it prayer from nine to five. And our, our teacher was the biblical hero, Nehemiah. I want us to go back to Nehemiah now and look at chapter two. So if you'd like to look there, we're going to um, pick up Nehemiah's story in verse four. That's where we left off a few weeks ago. So Nehemiah chapter two, verse four, the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. We're going to keep going, Michael. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, king of the, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I sent, I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So five months after Nehemiah began praying, asking God to intervene for Jerusalem, he found himself in front of the king asking him to intervene for Jerusalem. Now, if you're like me, you'd much rather ask God for something than to ask someone else. Because I know God will understand and want to help. I'm not so sure that my boss or my spouse or my friend or my neighbor or my fellow church member will be so agreeable. But when you ask God for something, so you're at your prayers and you're asking God for something, he may tell you to go ask someone else. That was the case for Nehemiah. And make no mistake, it can take faith to ask people, especially people in authority, for help. But when that asking comes out of our praying good things are going to happen. Nehemiah didn't ask the king for just one thing. He asked him for a number of things. Verse 5, send me to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 6, write me letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. Verse 7, order the king's forester to provide timber for me. You know what that implies? Nehemiah had not only prayed for Jerusalem, he'd thought about Jerusalem. He'd thought about what needed to be done. 
Prayer is a phenomenally important part of the Christian life, but it is not a substitute for thought. We want to pray and then forget about it. Okay, God, it's in your court now. I don't want to be bothered. But that's a mistake. We need to pay attention to the thoughts that come to our minds after we've prayed. If you've been praying about something and some thought comes into your mind about it, write it down. Think it through. Have a two-way conversation with God so that he can speak back to you. I see something here that could prevent that kind of two-way conversation with God, that can prevent us from hearing him or recognizing the answer that he's already ready to give. I I call it the we've-never-done-it-that-way-before syndrome. See, when an earlier group of exiles returned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah was not the first. There had been people coming back for a long time. When an earlier group of exiles returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and you can read this whole story in Ezra, the leaders decided to make that journey, same journey Nehemiah would make later on, but to do it without any military presence. They thought that asking for protection would demonstrate a lack of faith. And so they said, no, we don't want any protection. We're going to go and we're going to trust God. And they fasted and they went and nothing happened to them. Later on, when Nehemiah came, he welcomed a detachment of cavalry. Sometimes we get the idea that the only way to do something is the way we did it before. We get it into our heads that God has to do it the way we've done it. But don't tie God's hands. He is amazingly creative. Too often, we can't see what he's doing, and we can't hear what he's telling us because our own expectations get in the way. That's not the way we did it before. And so we don't even get pick up on what he's telling us. When Nehemiah reached Jerusalem, after what would have been a two-month journey at least, he didn't call a meeting. He didn't make arrangements to hold a press conference. Verse 11 says that he settled in and stayed for three days. That reminds me of something the prophet Isaiah wrote. He who believes will not be in haste. When we know that God is working in the details, we can take time to look and think and pray. But when we think it's all up to us, we panic and rush in. It's the we have to do something right now feeling. I know that from personal experience, don't you? We've got to go do something. I can't wait any longer for God to do something. But Nehemiah, who had been having this ongoing conversation with God for months, took his time. He didn't panic. But he could have. When God answers, or is about to answer, our prayers, it is not unusual for opposition to flare up. Have you seen that in your experience? You can see it in the scriptures. It's what happened to the Israelites in Egypt. The time came, finally came, for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. You can read about this in in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. After 400 years, God's going to answer his, his, fulfill his promise to Abraham. And people were praying. And God had heard them. And God was about to act. And you know what happened next? Their troubles got worse. Much worse. They were on the edge of experiencing remarkable things. On the edge of God's answer. And then opposition flared up. And you know what? 
they almost quit. They almost gave up. When God gets ready to answer our prayers, we shouldn't be surprised if things get worse. Nehemiah prayed, and this is verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They were disturbed, and they also did everything in their considerable power to oppose Nehemiah and prevent his prayer from being answered. The rest of the book chronicles their opposition. And that leads us to something else that we need to know about prayer. If you only pray in order to get out of uncomfortable or painful situations, it won't be long before you stop praying. Don't think of prayer as a way to get around conflict. Isn't that what we do? Oh, God, get me out of this mess. Get my child out of this mess. Don't think of prayer as only a way to get around conflict. Prayer is a way to get with God in what he's doing in his work. And God works in a broken, conflicted, and often hostile world. So if you're going to join him, you will experience opposition. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem and didn't do anything for three days. And then he had to look around. Neither during those three days nor during his inspection of the city did Nehemiah tell anyone the plan to rebuild the walls. He didn't even mention it. Verse 12 says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, that may be be because he didn't trust the people in Jerusalem. As we're going to learn later in the book, we're not going to do this in this series, but I encourage you to read Ezra and Nehemiah together. The two books belong together. Don't separate them. Read them together, and you'll see that some of the nobles with whom he had to work had aligned themselves with the opposition. Had Nehemiah told them what he was thinking, they would have done everything they could to stop him. But I think there's more to it than that. See, Nehemiah had learned to talk to God first, and only after that to talk to others. He had learned to spend more time talking to God than to other people. He had learned to let God speak to people's hearts before he tried to speak to their minds. Just because you believe God wants to do something, and even if you're right, that doesn't mean other people will believe it. You need to give them time and allow God to speak to them. I've seen pastors make this mistake repeatedly. They come to a new church, they diagnose all its ailments, and then they set about changing everything. But even if their diagnosis is spot on and their course of action is well chosen, they make a huge mistake by going about things in the wrong order. They speak to people first instead of to God. And then they compound the mistake by trying to push their ideas rather than allow God to show people what they've seen. It takes faith to talk to God first. It takes faith to wait. Do you notice that phrase in verse 12? What God had put in my heart. All the time Nehemiah was praying, those five months that we looked at last time, he wasn't just talking to God. God was talking to him. God was putting something into his heart. Sometimes it takes months for us to get enough room for him to put stuff into our hearts. If we're going to be effective at prayer, we need to learn to recognize what God has placed in our hearts. That thing energizes and sustains a prayer life. 
How do you know when God has placed something in your heart? How do you know it's not just your imagination? How how do you know it's not the devil? For the scripture teaches he can also place things in people's hearts. How do you know when God has placed something in your heart? There's not an easy answer to that question because it's concerned with a relationship and relationships aren't comprised with easy questions and easy answers. You know, I know it would be nice to have a five-step process to accurately discern whether or not God placed this thing in my heart. But you know what? If I had a five-step process that worked every time, then I'd skip the relationship, which is the basis of almost everything that God is doing in my life. It's in the relationship. He could get that stuff done a hundred other ways, a million other ways. Now, there are principles to go by. But there is no substitute for getting to know God. There are times when I know what my wife would like before she's even thought of it. And and she'll say, how did you know I wanted that? Well, duh, I've lived with you for 37 years. And more than that, I've loved her for 37 years and longer than that. It is in the interactions of a loving relationship that we come to understand each other. At least a little. I admit there's still many things about Karen I don't understand. (laughs) Not going to go into that. (laughs) And there's even more that I don't understand about God. But I do know this. It is in relationship that I will understand them. Not in a sheet of bullet points. That being said, let me share a few principles for discerning whether the idea in your mind and the burden on your heart comes from God. But remember, these principles cannot be reliably applied outside of a healthy relationship. I don't know how to overstress that. First principle, if the idea in your mind and the burden on your heart is all tied up with your self-image, go carefully. If the pastor who comes to church with a grand plan to make it successful is tangled up in anxiety about his own reputation, it will be very easy for him to mistake what God is saying, to mistake what he's saying for God. Be frank with yourself. Who gets the glory if this idea works, me or God? Second principle, you have to have room in your heart and mind to receive the things that God wants to put there. Is one of the biggest problems that we face and one of the main reasons we don't see more answers to our prayers. If your heart and mind are filled with what Jesus called the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, or with unforgiveness or with pride, you won't have room for God to put anything there. That was the case with the Pharisees to whom Jesus bluntly said, you have no room for my word. I give you my word, but you can't take it because you don't have room for it. Third principle. When God puts something in your heart, it stays there. There's a weight to it. It is not effervescent. Not here today and forgotten about tomorrow. Some people are, oh, God told me this and I'm going to do this. And three days later, they've forgotten all about it. I don't think that was God. You can't get away from what he puts in your heart. It took Nehemiah four or five months to act on what was in his heart, but it didn't go away. And you know what? It was still there ten years later. I think God 
puts things in people's hearts regularly or tries to if there's room for them. All right, there are other principles. I'm just going to mention one more right now. Whatever God puts in your heart will be consistent with what he's put in the scriptures. No hidden word from God in our hearts will ever contradict his real word, his revealed word in our Bibles. Let me say that again. No hidden word from God in our hearts will ever contradict his revealed word in our Bibles. You can count on that. God may want to be putting things in your heart right now. Do you have room to receive them? The things he puts in your heart will become one of the primary motivations for your prayers. But you must have room for them. I'm going to close with this prayer from A.W. Tozer. If it echoes with your desire, make it your own. Feel free to read it out loud or silently with me. Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it. And there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name.